welcome to this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, Editor-in-Chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. My guest on the podcast this week is Andrew McCabe, the former acting director of the FBI. Many of you probably first became aware of Andrew, like I did, when he replaced James Comey as director, and for his role in clearing the way for the appointment of special counsel Robert Mueller. Andrew headlined ACG Seattle's Northwest Middle Market Growth Conference this summer, where he spoke about cyber threats facing both the public and private sectors, especially mid-sized businesses, which are increasingly vulnerable to cyber attack. When he agreed to talk to us for the podcast, I wanted to focus primarily on cyber threats posed by state-supported actors and how they've evolved over time. That said, I felt I'd be remiss not to ask about his reaction to the Mueller report or about his outlook for election security during the 2020 elections, so you'll hear him discuss those topics during the interview too. If you're looking for more about his time with the FBI or his experience with the president, I'd recommend picking up his book titled The Threat, How the FBI Protects America in the Age of Terror and Trump. Andrew McCabe is actually our second podcast guest who came from the Bureau, If you haven't heard our interview with Chris Voss, the FBI's former lead international hostage negotiator, scroll down in the podcast feed to December 2018, when it was originally released. With that, here's my interview with Andrew McCabe. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Katie. It's a pleasure to do it. You first came on the radar of many Americans when you became acting director of the FBI after President Trump dismissed your predecessor, James Comey. In that role, you were instrumental in ensuring that the investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election moved forward and in the appointment of the special counsel. Were you satisfied with the findings of the Mueller report? You know, I I was both uh, impressed with the Mueller report and um, I guess maybe a little bit disappointed with it in some respects as well. It is, I think, um, an incredible document of overwhelming uh, facts and details. It's remarkably revealing. I think the, particularly the, um, the information that they included about Russian meddling in the 2016 election was really of the sort that the public doesn't get to hear very often. So they specifically identified Russian intelligence agencies and talked in great detail about the operational activity that those intelligence agencies engaged in. So I think it's a great thing for every American to read, uh, certainly people who are interested in that sort of stuff, because you are not going to get a view into how that work is done really anyplace else. So in, in... many ways, I thought it was an impressive report. Um, of course, I think probably like many Americans, I w- walked away from particularly the obstruction side of the report, um, wishing that the team had been more specific about their thoughts about whether or not the behavior that the president engaged in, which is laid out extensively in the report, would constitute indictable conduct if it was you know, if it was done by someone other than the president of the United States. So, um, yeah, it's an amazing piece of work. I have, of course, the highest respect for Director Mueller and the folks that he worked with. Um, but like any, you know, 400-page report, there are some things that uh, I think any any of us, if we had to go back and do it, might do a little differently. Have you seen the country make any progress toward recognizing the threat that Russia and other state actors pose to our cybersecurity, or is that conversation still too clouded by partisan politics? 
Well, I don't think we've made near the level uh, of, of we haven't had nearly the level of success that we need. Um, there is absolutely no doubt it has been uh, we've been talking about this. Uh, senior leaders in the intelligence community and law enforcement community, myself included, have testified about this under oath since 2017. Um and now, of course, we have the work of the Mueller report to give us the details of, of exactly how intensely the Russians targeted our democratic process and how they uh, engaged in cyber warfare against our election, essentially. Um, and despite all that uh, consistent information and those consistent assessments of the severity of the Russian threat, um, we really haven't taken major steps to do things differently. I think the folks in the agencies are doing what they can. I think the intelligence agencies are trying to lean as far forward as they can. I think DHS is, is trying to, um, there are some indications that DHS is really uh, trying to uh, conduct better and more effective outreach to the states. Um, but we still haven't taken any significant federal legislative steps. And I think that is a big mistake. In addition to threatening the integrity of our political system, cybersecurity poses a serious threat to American businesses, too. What are the most attractive assets for criminals, and have you seen that change over time? That's a great question, and it's one that I'm not sure anyone, even in the cybersecurity realm, government, or in the private sector, could answer um, very easily. You know, at the beginning of our efforts tracking and countering foreign cyber attacks and Russian cyber uh, malign activity online, um, and, and particularly Chinese-originated uh, uh, cyber attacks on our businesses and our, our commercial infrastructure, um, we were, you know, to be quite honest, surprised by some of the targeting that we were seeing. So, like the persistent targeting of healthcare systems, of health insurance companies, things like that appeared to be just massive thefts of data rather than actually weaponizing that data or going after companies to extort them, things like that, um, was curious to us. This is going back, you know, several years. I think what we're seeing now is a much broader and more aggressive targeting effort. So. Um, as one example, you see the profusion of um, malicious activity directed at small to mid-level businesses um, in which ransomware is used to lock up or destroy or remove um, computer infrastructure or data from businesses, hospitals, municipalities, and then uh, requests for ransom are made in order to uh, re-secure that data that's been stolen or, or locked down. Um, that stuff is just happening every day across the country to all sorts of businesses, not just the major players, not just the major tech players and the major banks, which, you know, originally we saw uh, the financial institutions being some of the most targeted entities. Now you're seeing small to middle-sized um, municipalities around the country. Uh, the targeters uh, are realizing that if you go after smaller entities, they are less likely to have the security and the prevention um, steps in place. So they're easier to victimize. They don't have the resources to be able to recreate that data. And so that makes them more likely to pay ransoms in an effort to try to get uh, access to their own information. So I think what you're seeing is the adversaries getting much smarter about 
what to target, who to target, and how to use that information to um, extract the the most money and you know financial advantage out of out of it that they can. We hear about how cyber criminals are advancing at a, a faster pace than companies and law enforcement can keep up with in a lot of instances. Has the FBI had to adopt new recruitment strategies or training to be able to attract a new set of employees that can handle this type of work? No question. We were absolutely doing that when I was with the FBI. It was one of our uh, most significant kind of human resources challenges. And I would expect that the FBI is still grappling with that issue today. Um, you know, the fact is there is intense comp- competition uh, in the private sector and in uh, government um, to be able to attract the, the best and the right sort of cyber talent, right? So folks at every level from your recent college graduates all the way up to the most sophisticated, you know, educated and experienced computer scientists, all those folks are in, um, in great demand in government and the private sector. Of course, government can't match the salaries and the financial benefits of the private sector, so that makes it even a little tougher to find those folks. Mm-hmm. Um, what we tried to do at the FBI was really use our brand and the opportunity to serve your country, to serve your community, um, to work in some of the most intense and satisfying um, aspects of the cyber challenges and challenges in cyberspace. Um, and so we were, we were able to continue attracting folks who really are drawn to that sort of work and drawn to an institution like the FBI um, rather than just kind of pursuing uh, the most lucrative offer. Uh, it's tough, though. I mean, it is. Um, there are definitely not enough people in our workforce nationally that have those advanced skills, and um, and they're all in, in very high demand. You spoke at ACG Seattle's Northwest Middle Market Growth Conference recently, and you described how Russia has long been focused on intelligence and influencing politics, while China has largely targeted intellectual property. Have those different motivations influenced how the FBI allocates resources or its strategy in dealing with threats from each of those two countries? All those sorts of things have a big impact on how the FBI acquires and deploys its, its cyber and investigative resources. And there's also, you know, quite simply, there's a volume aspect to the business as well. So if you have, um, you know, if, if one particular threat actor, like let's say, for example, China, is really focused on the private sector and they are victimizing dozens and dozens and hundreds, Lord knows how many companies. Um, just from terms of cyber response assets, you need a, uh, you know, a lot of people who are trained with those skills all across the country assigned to different field offices who could get out to the affected entities as soon as we find out what's happened and, and try to build those relationships where we can cooperate to find a path forward. The Russian cyber efforts are really a part of their ongoing, never-ending, incredibly aggressive intelligence collection activities targeting the United States. So, you know, we'll never have enough people to co- to cover every one of those threats all the time. It's really, you know, very much like what managers do in the private sector. You know, you never quite have as much of the resources that you'd like to deal with. So you have to be very strategic in terms of how you uh, deploy them. And that's something that we tried to develop systems within the Bureau to help us do that. 
One justification that the Trump administration has made for imposing tariffs on China is intellectual property theft. And there seems to be consensus that IP theft is a real problem that affects a lot of businesses. But much of the business community believes that tariffs really aren't the right response, that they're too blunt of a tool. In your view, what's the best way to deal with China and to protect U.S. companies from intellectual property theft? Well, it's an issue that we've been um, trying to grapple with for many years. And I think a lot of people, look, you could say that we've, uh, with, you know, our previous strategies weren't as successful as we'd like. And, you know, maybe that's why the current administration is being more aggressive. I can tell you that the, the approach that we took in prior administrations was really one that focused on engagement, um, understanding that your adversary may be doing things like IP theft and you're trying to discourage them from doing that, the best way to do that is to have them at the table, to broker out agreements, to try to make distinctions between things like intellectual property theft and typical intelligence gathering or statecraft, which is things that you know other countries are going to do. I think we had some success with that uh, with the Chinese in the previous administration, not nearly as much success as everyone would have liked. But it, nevertheless, there was a process that we had come up with. We had a routine engagement with the Chinese that involved high-level de- delegations kind of going back and forth from the uh, United States to Beijing. And we did, during that period, see a significant decline in Chinese uh, malign cyber activity, particularly in the areas of information and IP theft. So was it perfect? No, but I felt like we were making some progress. Of course, I'm not a part of government now, so I don't know what they're seeing in response to the tariffs, but it is hard to imagine that we are going to convince our adversaries to do business differently if we are using those tools of business to kind of injure each other through a through a trade war. So Yes, we need a better path forward with the Chinese. Um, I just think that we probably we might be better served by continuing to engage with them. Since the trade conflict has escalated, do you expect we'll see more cyber attacks now that the relationship has become more adversarial? Well, it's certainly reasonable to assume that as the relationship deteriorates, we're going to see all kinds of uh, aggressive targeting and um you know, malign cyber activity and other levels of intelligence collection that we might have been able to avoid. So, yeah, when <laughs> I guess you could say when things are getting worse, they're likely to get worse. Uh, it seems fairly obvious, but um, I, I would expect to see that. We're hearing from leaders of U.S. companies that they're exploring moving to suppliers outside of China in response to the tariffs. If a manufacturer is quickly shifting to a new supplier in Thailand or Vietnam, let's say, is this going to create a new set of vulnerabilities from a security standpoint? You know, I think it does. I think um, the private sector, you know, confronts the same challenges in the cyber world that the government does. Um, When you are on defense, you you have to be on your game and successful all the time. And the cyber criminals and the foreign intelligence agencies that conduct cyber warfare, they only have to get right once. They can send out thousands or hundreds of thousands of spear phishing efforts, and they only need one person to click on the wrong link to get them inside your network. Um, that is a very tough game for uh, 
for the government to play. It's even harder for private sector entities and smaller entities who don't have the resources to engage in the sophisticated cyber defenses. Um, as you change locations, uh, you are going to, predictably, you're going to re you run the risk of raising uh, the attention of a new set of cyber actors, be they criminal or uh, or state state supported. Uh, so. Yeah, you're entering into an entirely new environment. You are going to be coming across a new set of cyber actors. And so the, the challenges to your defenses are going to be new and different. And so that, that of course, will, um, you know, could put you in a, a tougher spot. We've talked a lot about foreign actors, but some of the most high-profile breaches have been made by U.S. citizens. Chelsea Manning, for example, or the former Amazon employee responsible for the Capital One hack recently. In your view, is the U.S. criminal justice system taking the right steps to prosecute and deter cybercrime domestically? I think the justice system is, tr like everybody, trying to adopt uh, and adapt, I guess better word, to the cyber realm. You know, we were definitely walking on some kind of, you know, charting um, new waters uh, when we tried to bring cases against the first cyber hackers. There are challenges in terms of evidence collection. There can also be challenges in those cases in terms of the classification of evidence. Sometimes your best um, information about cyber activity comes from intelligence partners, and that always presents great uh, hurdles to, to using that sort of information in a, uh, in a federal criminal case. But the more we do it, the better we get at it. It's really very similar to the way that we um, adapted our processes and approaches in responding to the war on terrorism after September 11th. So there is a bit of a um, maturation process that needs to go on there. I think we're much better at it now than we were, you know, 10, certainly 10, 15 years ago. Um, but certainly it's an area that we need to continue to focus on. What are your predictions as they relate to foreign interference in the next election? Do you think our institutions are any better equipped to deal with cyber threats now than they were the last go around? Well, at first, I think there's there's no doubt that foreign adversaries will attempt to target our our elections, particularly in 2020. But there's no question that the Russians look at their activities in 2016 as a massive success. So there's really no reason to believe that they'll be discouraged from trying something uh, something different in 2020. Um, and that Russian success, I would say, has probably been noted very carefully by our other significant cyber actors, so by China, by North Korea, and others, Iran. Um, so I think the um, scope of uh, state-sponsored actors that may be trying to manipulate or simply sow chaos and confusion and, and uh, into our election, I think the scope of those actors is going to broaden significantly. Whether or not we are prepared for that sort of targeting um, is a much tougher question. Um, part of you know, the unique character of our electoral system is that it is so diverse. It's state-based, and each state does it a little bit differently, and certainly their processes and cyber infrastructure are different. Um, the states are very protective of that independence and in their role in the electoral system, so there are there is some resistance to some of the efforts that the federal government has uh, traditionally tried to, um, you know, when the federal government comes in and tries to help, sometimes that help is rebuffed. Um, so it's 
that is a much cloudier picture. And it's, you know, I haven't seen anything publicly that would lead me to believe that, yeah, we're in great shape. We've done all the cyber hygiene and the protection we need to, and we shouldn't worry about it. Um, of course, I'm not, I don't have access to uh, that kind of inside government information anymore. But from what I've seen publicly, I think we still have a lot to worry about. Well, a, a bit of a bleak note to end on, but we'll leave it there. Andrew, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Oh, uh, Thanks very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at acg.org. I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.